On most Saturday nights, Pooja Makanjani and her family enjoy a tradition. They all gather around the TV to watch a Bollywood movie together. Bollywood movies tend to be long. They tend to be like two to three hours long. So it's like a whole night's production. There's like lots of popcorn and candy and it's fun. (laughs) Pooja is 45. She's a writer. And she and her 11-year-old daughter live with Pooja's parents in their house in central New Jersey. They moved in in 2016 after Pooja separated from her then-husband. It was a situation that was really familiar to me. Uh, My family is Indian American, and um, multi-generational living arrangements are commonplace culturally. I grew up in a multi-generational home uh, with my paternal grandparents. So it was a it was a situation that felt familiar and that I felt I could navigate, especially at a time that I was feeling really vulnerable. Pooja says living under the same roof as her parents has practical benefits. They divide the housework and the childcare. She's noticed some cultural benefits too, especially for her daughter. We speak Sindhi, which is a South Asian language, and uh, I code switch when I speak to my parents. So I speak partially in English and in Sindhi, and sort of we go back and forth. And my daughter has picked up Sindhi, which is like a lesser-known South Asian language, just because it's in her world. Um, And she has such an affinity for South Asian food. Um, You know, I don't think she could live without my mom's biryani now. But there are challenges, too, and they are challenges familiar in families, such as negotiating boundaries. I think that sometimes they forget that I'm 45 years old (laughs) and they kind of revert to old parental roles and sometimes that happens and I have to call that out. I'm also giving up sort of a little bit of my privacy and a little bit of space too. And as an adult, as an American adult, I think that's also been, despite my cultural upbringing being, you know, having been raised in this country, I think that I, you know, struggle with that a little bit. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Pooja is one of a growing number of Americans who are living in homes with multiple generations under one roof. That number is now almost 60 million Americans, almost one in five people in this country, according to an analysis of census data by Pew Research. And that's more than double the percentage of what it was in the early 1970s. Pew also found that nearly one-third of all Americans aged 25 to 29 live in multi-generational households, now a third of them. And the percentage is higher for young men than young women, almost 40% of young men compared to 26% of young women. So the American nuclear family has been undergoing a quiet transformation, driven by larger changes in the economy and society. And in a sense... National policy has always been driven by the expectation that family has always been the ultimate safety net in this country. Well, we can now see both the benefits and the costs of that assumption in the lives of 60 million Americans. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Well, joining us now is Amy Lee Daludado, and she is a third grade teacher joining us from New Jersey. Uh, Amy Lee Lou, welcome. Hi, Magna. Hello. It's great to be on your show. And I want to apologize in advance if I mispronounced your name. Can you give me the the proper way to say your name? 
Oh, sure. So if you're Filipino, you would say Amilu, but since I grew up here, Amy Lou is fine. Amy Lou is fine. Okay, good. I know what you mean because I still get emails from people uh, from uh, of South Asian origin who tell me I say my name all wrong because I, I use an American <laughs> accent and pronouncing it. Well, so tell me a little bit about uh, who is all living under the same roof in your home. Sure. So it's my husband and I, and we have three children, um, ages 16, 13, and 12. So needless to say, there's a lot of, you know, teenage um, hormones going around the house. But in addition to that, we also have my husband's parents. Um, They're about in their mid-70s now. So we're all just one big family in our house here in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And has this always been been the case? Has your have your husband's parents lived with uh, you, or or vice versa, uh, and your husband and kids since forever? Or how does, how did this come about? So I think a lot of factors played into how they moved in. First, um, it just so happened that my father-in-law, mother-in-law were retiring and it was time for a change, just downgrading from a house. Um, You know, they didn't want to have to take care of landscaping and taking care of just like a huge house and paying the bills of having a house that only both of them were living in. And it just so happened that our kids, we also needed childcare um, and we had a space in the home that we had bought around the time, I want to say, closer to the pandemic or right before that. So it just, um, I felt like there were benefits for both of us. Um, they were able to live in a home where they weren't by themselves and they got to downgrade. And they also, you know, spent time with grandkids. And in essence, for us, we had childcare, which you know, the best child care grandparents we, we could ask for. Right. So this, um, the sort of mutual benefit, and especially when it comes in, to the need for different kinds of care, is something that comes up over and over again when people talk about why they're living in multi-generational households. Now, I, I should say, uh, Amy Lee, that you... Um, very kindly asked members of your family if they would be willing to be interviewed by you <laughs> for us. Um, right, I understand right. that your in-laws um, respectfully declined, which which is totally okay. <laughs> um, but uh, your son, um, who's 16, uh, did answer some questions uh, that yes. you put to him. And so here's a little bit of what he said about what it's like living with both his parents and grandparents. Well, what I like about it is that, like, before... They live far away. It was really hard for me to spend time with them and see them and, like, visit them. Mm-hmm. But now, since they're literally just downstairs, I can go down whenever I want. I can play chess with my uh, grandfather whenever I want. I can talk to them whenever I want. I can see them, like, anytime. Any favorite things that you like about having a grandma who is a really good cook? <laughs> <laughs> well, that. Like, the like it's just, like, so much food. And, like, it's all made with, like, love and care. And then she's always making food. And I always go downstairs, and there's always something good there. And she's always, like, inviting me down to eat. I know. Maybe you can talk a little bit about how you are teammates, you know, from wrestling and from football. All you also, right, like, uh, experience some of that. Uh, after wins, I was, like, you know, in wrestling, you have to cut down for, uh, for like, to make the weight. Uh, my grandma would always prepare grilled cheeses for me initially, uh, but then 
uh, I couldn't finish them all, so I would give them to my teammates, and they loved them. And like more and more people just started finding out about it. More of my teammates started finding out about it. So I'd be like handing out like eight like grilled cheeses like every match day. Shout out to grandmas who feed the <laughs> wrestling team. <laughs> Amy Lou, are you throwing shade on your own cooking there? Like in comparison? You know, I I that was a moment of reflection for me when I when I realized that hey, my son's not asking me for food. <laughs> Well, so there are, I mean, clearly he, he outlines a bunch of the, the, the clear benefits there. First of all, the relationship, it sounds like, that he has with mm-hmm. his grandparents that is communicated through lots of things, love and, and food uh, especially. Um, right. do, do you, what other benefits do you think there are for your, for your kids right now? Right. So I think, you know, what I've been noticing, they have more moments to talk with their grandparents. I feel like if they were far away, they don't really get a chance to ask them about their childhood. Um, I know my daughter was sick for a few days and she hung out with them. So she just asked her grandparents, hey, how was life like in the Philippines? And of course, that was a great question because they have a lot of stories to share. So she came back upstairs and couldn't wait to tell me. So I think that's one of them, just preserving some of those cultural heritage that they otherwise may not have the chance to be exposed to had they been far away from their grandparents. Mm, I, I can I completely understand that. And it also seems like there might be some great benefit in having multiple adults around with uh, maybe the similar set of values, but different perspectives as, as being guides in your children's lives. Um, your daughter, though, whom you also kindly interviewed for us, uh, who's 13, <laughs> mentioned um, some of the other, the pluses we talked about food, but also talked about one, you know, potential delicate disadvantage. Getting lectured all the time. Like, if I go downstairs where my grandparents live and I get one thing, they'll turn into a lecture. Like, if they see something, they're like, have you been eating or you're not eating enough? Seems like a pretty gentle lecture, actually. But how do you, what are the kinds of things that you do have to negotiate as a family with multiple generations living together? Right. I think parenting styles are very different. Um, Their background, I guess, they have a, you know, stern expectation about how children should treat their elders or adults um, and the kids just communication wise there. That seems to be uh, a point where we have to negotiate where, you know, your grandparents are coming from a place where they want to care for you in this way, but for them, it could be seen as overbearing. Mm -hmm. So it's like giving each other the space to um, think about where each other is coming from. Um, Parenting styles for us also, you know, I was just saying we have um, an app that tracks our kids, (laughs) but for grandparents, it's like every time you step out of the house, you should tell us where you're going, who are you going to be with, how long are you (laughs) staying there? (laughs) You know, did you talk to their parents? Have you seen their parents? And that's fine. Obviously, those are things that we also care about, but I guess not um, to the degree that they expect. Um, I said, you know, we have them on track. We know they're moving. Uh, I see it on the tracker. Yeah. Um, So those are some things that I think, you know, can be a point of contention and just have to um, just negotiate kind of, okay, what's a good fight and what's not. Yeah. Do you anticipate, we've just got about um, 30 seconds before we have to take a quick break, uh, Amy Amy Lou. Do you anticipate Mm -hmm. other forms of potential pressures um, arising as 
your in-laws themselves get older. Like, they've helped you provide care for your kids. Um, will, do you anticipate having to provide care for them in the future? Yeah, something we're definitely thinking of as they're growing older. And, you know, our children are also growing older, so we can expect them to be caregivers. I think that roles will be switching very soon in the near future. Well, Amy Lou Daludado is a third grade teacher and lives with her children and her in-laws in a multi-generational household in New Jersey. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with us. Thank you so much. We're going to talk more about what's driving uh, the increasing number of Americans to live under one roof together in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for On Point comes from BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com OnPoint today to get 10% off your first month. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we are talking about the fact that now nearly one in five Americans lives in a multi-generational home, uh, that is, with their adult children or also with their own parents, or if you, depending on who you are, if you're the grandparent, you're living with your children and your grandchildren as well. But there's been a really profound growth in the number of Americans who are living in these situations, and we're talking about why that is today, what the benefits are and what the costs are. And boy, did we ever hear from uh, you listeners about this. For example, here's Nikki Carpenter. She grew up on the south side of Chicago. When she was around seven, she and her mom and dad moved in with her great aunt, and two cousins because her great-uncle had died. Then, when Nikki's mom got divorced, they moved in with her grandma. And she says, it wasn't always easy. But now that she has a five-year-old daughter of her own, she sometimes gets nostalgic about it. At the time, I probably didn't appreciate it like I do now. Now that I'm a mom, I was just well cared for, whether it came, you know, down to like dinner being made or um, laundry or hair. My aunt was like very intimate with me. Like she would like lay me on her lap and like clean out my ear. And and my grandmother would give me these lectures. And then my mom was in my ear all around. I had these amazing Black women, and then my my dad as well. Um, now it's my husband, myself, and my daughter. And sometimes I just look around like, I need some more hands here. That's Nikki Carpenter. Well, joining me now is Hope Harvey. She's Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the University of Kentucky, and she's with us from Lexington, Kentucky. Professor Harvey, welcome to you. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And also with us today is Michelle Singletary. She is the nationally syndicated personal finance columnist at The Washington Post. And 
one of my favorite people, one of On Point's money ladies. Michelle, it's so good to have you back. Oh, it's always so good to join you. Thank you for having me. Okay, we really wanted you uh, to join us today in our conversation with Professor Harvey because you're living the multi-generational life too, right? <laughs> I am. Truth three times over. <laughs> um, I have all three of, well, I should, we, my husband and I have all three of our adult children, 27, 24, and 22 living with us. They've all graduated from college um, and they're not living here because they have any student loan debt or trying to get out of debt. They uh, my husband and I sent them to school with no debt, um, but we as a family decided that it was best economically rather than them having to pay the average rent in the D.C. area of, is about $2,500. So instead of paying that, they're paying themselves. They're mm. putting that money in the bank so when they launch, they can go and maybe not come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you in a few minutes what some of the um, delicate negotiations in a multi-generational household look like. But but let me just get down to brass tacks with you for, quickly, Michelle. So there was, this was an economic decision that the family made together, which makes me wonder, let's say that rents weren't sky high in the D.C. area. Would you still have wanted your children to be living with you as, as adult children under the same roof at this point? I actually would have okay. because um, we talked about if they stayed here for several years and saved the majority of their paycheck, because staying here, we don't charge them rent. We don't charge them for utilities with the idea that they were going to uh, save, you know, upwards of 80 percent plus of their take home pay. And with the idea that once they left, they would have enough to buy a house either outright or close to it. So that by their late 30s, early 40s, if they did have to get a home loan, they'll be done. And they would not have the most expensive part of their budget in their budget, which is housing, except for taxes, of course. Um, and so it was, a, we, you know, as we talked to them, we wanted them to leverage these years where they don't have to to have a place by themselves so they can take that money and when they launch be in a better position. Think about it. It would be a game changer for them if they don't have a mortgage or rent mm -hmm. for the majority of their adulthood, which means they can save for retirement. They can retire early if they get married and one of them wants to stay home and, and, and watch the kids and not work. They can live on one income. It gives them more financial choices. Mm. Okay. So, um, there's there's the this underlying truth about financial choices, the structure of the economy today, and the sort of uh, uh, the cost benefit analysis that families have to constantly do. Point taken, and we're going to dig into that a little bit more because it's something that uh, many folks we reached out to reflected on. For example, Lena Guzman, who directs the Hispanic Institute at the uh, at the research organization. Child Trends, says that a lot of times Latino families may live together also for financial reasons. Having multiple workers to help make ends meet, having a grandparent who may be receiving Social Security, uh, which may be providing um, a very stable source of income or the only source of income for an extended family. Uh, many Latino families live in cities where housing, um, the housing market and rent are quite high. And so to reduce the burden that rent plays or has on a household's um, income, you know, families can choose to 
to pull together resources so that they together can pay for for housing, rent, or mortgages. Again, that's Lena Guzman, who directs the Hispanic Institute at the organization Child Trends. Now, Professor Harvey, um, you know, I I would love to step back for a second in order to understand uh, where we are now by looking where we have been. I mean, because I don't want to come off as saying multi-generational housing is like suddenly a thing in the United States and it never was before. Can you give us just a short history of, uh, of what that's looked like in, in this country? Yeah, certainly. So the type of multi-generational families that I study are um, families with children who are living in three-generation households. So that means a household that includes a parent, a grandparent, and a child. Um, So rates of multi-generational co-residents today, these three-generation households, about one in 10 kids live with a parent in a multi-generational household today. So these rates are extremely high. They're about as high as they were around 1950, which is the historical peak of multi-generational co-residents. Um, and they're more than double what they were in the around the 1980s when um, a historic low of around 5% of kids were living in these households. So what we're seeing today is really sort of a return to the historical peak that we saw. Okay, so let's talk about what happened in that post-war period, essentially, is what you're, is what you're, you're talking about. Because isn't, that's the... That's the era where um, we have the the emergence of this concept of the nuclear family, the rapid expansion of suburban housing, um, more people going to college due to the the GI Bill. I mean, so it sounds like like there were a lot of forces in play to make multi generational housing not so much the necessity that it was uh, prior to 1950. Yeah, certainly. And in recent decades, we've seen increases in um, both uh, multi-generational households that are in the grandparents' household with the family moving in and uh, multi-generational households that are in the parents' household with the grandparent moving in. Um, So both of these have been increasing in recent decades. Okay. So then what would you say are the things that began changing in the 1980s um, that that began the rise in the number of multi-generational households? You know, I think that that's still an open question um, and an area that still needs a lot more research. I will say that in recent decades, there are a few things that I think have been um, contributing to it. First, we've seen housing costs um, growing far more quickly than wages. We've seen high child care costs. And so living in these multi-generational households through economies of scale and through help with child care, that can lower both of those. Um, there have been some great research by Pilkowskis and Cross that have linked the increases in multi-generational households in recent decades to higher rates of unpartnered parenthood, so parents who might need the economic and child care assistance that multi-generational households can provide. And then that research has also linked um, the rise of multi-generational households to a rise in social security receipt, um, which may give the grandparents more economic stability. Oh, okay. Okay, so let's uh, keep that in mind and turn back to uh, Lina Guzman, who's, the again, the head of the Hispanic Institute at the organization Child Trends, because she told us that about 15 percent of Latino children in the United States uh, live with a grandparent, 10 percent live with an unrelated adult. Uh, Lina says, though, that in addition to the economic uh, factors, those numbers may be partially uh, rooted in culture. There has been a cultural and historic norm to be living in multi-generational households or to be living very close to one's grandparents or aunts and uncles. In many Latin American countries and cultures, 
Um, it's a very uh, oriented very much towards the family. So the family unit and thinking about the family first. So for example, it's not, it, it wouldn't be unexpected to pull resources to benefit the family as opposed to uh, benefiting the individual. Michelle, I want to turn back to you because, um, you know, there are definitely cultural um, reasons to to stay together as well. I mean, I, my parents are, are South Asian and their entire lives growing up in India was like everybody living around them had multi-generational households. So it, it was the norm. But it feels like, and especially given the history that Professor Harvey was just describing, that it it wasn't necessarily considered the norm for a big chunk of the 20th century uh, in this country. Are there parts of you, Michelle, that think that, um, you know, what's happening here is um, uh, economic factors that are preventing my children from being, quote unquote, independent in the way that we might have previously expected young American adults to be able to be? Yeah, you know, I think, and and you know, for for African American households, there was a lot of multi generational living just mm-hmm. because we couldn't get homes. We mm-hmm. people wouldn't rent to us, so you did live with, you know, your grandparents and aunties and uncles. Um, I am very dismayed at how we characterize this housing as it relates to young adults, as if somehow they have failed. Um, if they don't launch soon enough, in our opinion. Um, And at the same time, we are quite aware, particularly since a lot of the young adults like to be in, you know, metropolitan areas, that the cost of living is so expensive. So on the one hand, we like, you go out there at 18 and you can learn to be on your own. On the other hand, man, rent is really high, food costs a lot, utilities, and and many of them uh, have student loan debt. And so there's a disconnect and then we criticize them. I mean, I was really struck by the, percentage of, you know, more men living in home. And so you hear jokes like, oh, he's 30, living in his mom's basement. Um, and, and it makes them feel like they're a failure when, in fact, it could be the smartest thing that they do economically. I was at um, Prince George's Community College and was talking to a couple of students and a guy, young man, and I was just asking him questions because, you know, I'm a mom, I ask questions. So I was just like, oh, how's it going? And he, said, and he was, you know, telling me, he said, yeah, I'm at home trying to save money. And I was like, good for you. And he just stopped he was like, what? Wait, what's going on here? And I, he just, he said, because most people criticize me. I said, no, you're being really smart because you're trying to make sure that you are economically safe. Um, and even in my situation, my, my middle child, my son is on the autism spectrum mm-hmm. and he graduated from college with a math degree, did well, um, but his first job wasn't a good fit. You know, they didn't understand his autism. They weren't you know, patient enough with him. And he lost his job not soon after he got it. He Had he been in an apartment trying to struggle and make it, that would have been more devastating to them than, it, than to him than it already was. But because he was living at home, he had me and his dad, I'm going to cry, mm-hmm. and his older sister talking to him because he was devastated. And so we were saying, it's okay, you, we got you, no worries. And so we pivoted. So now he's going back to school to do some accounting, to get a little bit more skills. So a situation that could have been really pretty dramatically devastating. Turned out to be hard, but it didn't knock him out. Mm -hmm. And that's because he was living here. He didn't have to pay rent. He didn't have to worry about, you know, how to make the food budget. And so I, 
you know, I'm just really glad that he was here and he could have this cocoon of love and safety at a very vulnerable time in his young adult life. And so I need people to stop saying things, you know, like, you know, oh, you still live with your mom or, you know, when they're dating, it's like, you live with your mom or your dad or your parents, Um, you know, until you find out the situation. Now, having said that, you know, young adults coming home, there ought to be some productive stuff going on. If they're just, you know, sloughing around, (laughs) that's a whole nother situation. Well, we don't want that. (laughs) So I just want to jump in here because I love that story because it's such a concrete example of the the unique kind of support not just of, yeah. not just economically but of course emotionally socially spiritually that comes from these kinds of households uh, but Pro- Professor Harvey, you know, it's not one thing or the other, right? This is a complex situation because I'm also seeing that, like, in your research, uh, in families that you that you studied and have talked to, that this idea that a cult there is a cultural norm of having a home of your own was especially internalized amongst mothers. Do I have that right? Yeah, so I interviewed mothers with young children um, and those who were living um, sort of as a guest in someone else's home, uh, a lot of them expressed this sort of internalized cultural norm that families should have a home of their own. Um, and so this made it really challenging for them to live happily in a shared household. So obviously there were a lot of psychological costs from not being able to or not having a home of their own for themselves and their family. Um, and then in addition to that, um, families who live in someone else's home occupy sort of a subordinate position in the household, as some of your guests have sort of suggested and other scholars like Linda Burton have found. Um, when you rely on someone like a parent for housing, you're living under their rules, um, often for yourself and then often for your kids. And a lot of mothers told me um, that they felt like that was sort of inconsistent with the, what they expected for themselves, both as an adult um, and then also as a parent. Mm. Well, so Michelle, what do you think about that? I think that's such a great point and why it's so important that when you do have these situations that you talk through things. Um, And my husband and I have been very intentional, not just with our adult children, because we also let other relatives come live with us when they need the help. And when they move in, we have a family meeting. We sit down and we say things like, this is not our home. This is your home too. You can go in the cabin and get whatever you want to eat. You know, and we're going to fuss that you eat my grapes, but it's not be like, did you eat my grapes? You know, it, it, this is, you come and go like you're an adult. And I think that is so important, particularly, and it's hard for me, you know, I'm the mom. And so I have to kind of check myself all the time. You know, when I'm run, like, where are you going? Like, sometimes I go, mm, don't ask that because this is a young adult. Right. And so I might go, hey, where are you going? <laughs> you know, you just, change the tone. So there has to be a baseline respect that this is their space too Mm. and that they're not a guest. This is their home. So when you say a home of your own, it is their home. Yeah. You know, I'm looking at the data from Pew Research uh, and in their study, only 23% of respondents that they talked to said that living in a multi-generational household was stressful. The vast majority said it was convenient and rewarding. Uh, But we're still going to dig in a little bit more about why this is happening and especially how national policy has frequently been shaped around um, presumptions of what the American family, what the American home might look like. So we'll do that when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I 
think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we are talking about multi-generational households in the United States. Uh, According to a study from Pew Research now, almost one in five Americans lives in this kind of housing, and we're talking about why, what the benefits are, and what uh, the costs are. And I'm joined today by Michelle Singletary. She's the nationally syndicated personal finance columnist at The Washington Post, author of many books, the latest of which is What to Do With Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide. And Hope Harvey joins us as well. She's an assistant professor of public policy at the University of Kentucky. Michelle and Hope, I want to just share a bunch more stories that we got from On Point listeners uh, about all aspects of living in a multi-generational household. So here's Dexter Chris in Plattsburgh, New York, who says his mother moved in uh, with him around 2010. Dexter's father had died, and his mother was living alone in Arkansas. And Dexter realized that he and his wife needed not only to help their mother, but that his mother could help taking care of their kids. There were some adjustments, of course, at first. Uh, My mom uh, cooking the way she likes to cook. My wife cooks the way she likes to cook. And our siblings always uh, going at it. But in 2019, uh, our son Dalton died in a tragic car accident. And having my mom here during that accident uh, probably saved my life because she was someone that I could lean on. Dexter, thanks for sharing that story with us. Here's Robin Humphreys in America's Georgia, who told us that her father moved in with her and her husband and their four-year-old daughter about a year ago after her father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. We rearranged our household and brought our daughter into our bedroom so we could give my dad her bedroom. Having our daughter in our bedroom for the last year has been a little crunched up. There's pros as well of being able to spend time with my dad, having him able to spend time with his granddaughter. My daughter is four. It's also given me an opportunity to do some uh, personal healing work around, you know, my own family history and experiences with my dad growing up. 
That's Robin Humphreys from America's Georgia. And here's one more. This is Renee Fratantonio, and she actually has a bit of a light heart about uh, her situation because she jokingly refers to her home as a compound because different family le- members live in separate apartments, but all on one property. She says they all started eating breakfast and dinner together as a way to spend uh, some quality time after her father died. But mealtimes aren't always easy. I can't tell you how challenging it is to try and cook for six adults. Everyone's got their own idea about what makes a good dinner. Their ideas about food are fully formed. It's not like with a kid where you can try to wheedle them and get them to try something new or hide it under a lot of cheese. My grandfather's 87. He has lots of strong opinions about side dishes and uh, any food that isn't meat and potatoes. Thanks for that story, Renee. Professor Harvey, so while we have no exclusive income level in which multigenerational housing is growing, it does seem to me that part of the reason or, or the the lower you get in the socioeconomic scale in this country, um, the more likely it is that financial uh, security is th- the main reason for this. Now, basically, so does that mean that families have had to sort of come together again under the sa- under one roof because our external uh, social safety net has been fraying, you know, roughly since the 1980s? Yeah, certainly. So um, in recent years, we've actually seen more economically advantaged groups have experienced the largest increase in three-generation households. So this is older parents, married parents, higher levels of education. Um, But at the same time, these households are much more common among disadvantaged groups. So whenever I spoke with families about how they ended up living in shared households, I found that a lot of families moved into these households, um, into someone else's home in response to a crisis. So a housing crisis, um, a relationship breakup that left them without a home. But I also found that it wasn't just um, sort of the lowest income families who were living in these households and moving into these households, that high housing costs were really affecting families across um, a broad swath of the income distribution. So some families, um, for example, described not being able to save up for their dream of home ownership while they were paying so much of their income on housing. And so they decided to move into a shared household in order to save up money for their ultimate goal of home ownership or to get further education, um, things like that. And so what I found is that this um, the high housing costs are really affecting um, a broad mm. portion of families. Mm-hmm. Well, they must have been read, reading Michelle's book, right, Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. Because that actually, that is our situation. We, my, but I have a master's degree. My husband has a master's degree. Our kids are highly educated. But we made the economic decision to uh, to have them come live with us for that exact reason to just get them a leg up on the cost of housing. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to actually also point out something else that uh, Pew found. Um, And Professor Harvey, I wonder if this rings true to you based on your research, because they say that a third of U.S. adults in multi-generational households say caregiving is a major reason for their living arrangement. 12% cite child care, the need for child care. Makes a lot of sense. But what surprised me is is Pew found that 25% cited adult caregiving as Mm. the need for multi-generational homes. 
Yeah, so in my research on um, three-generation households with families with children, I find that childcare is definitely an important benefit of these multi-generational households. So these households are most common in the years when you would expect parents to need the most childcare assistance. So when the child is first born, when the child is very young, um, living in multi-generational households is very common um, among unmarried mothers who might who not who don't have a co-resident partner to help with childcare. Living in a multi-generational household is very common. Um, and as your guest suggested earlier, uh, after relationship dissolution, parents are especially likely to live in or to move into shared households. So all of this suggests that childcare is an important driver. Um, and Mariana Morum has some great research showing that parents who live in multi-generational households do indeed spend less on childcare outside the home, and they're able to invest that money um, in their children in other ways. Mm. And then in my sample, in addition to childcare, I saw some households that were multi-generational with an older adult or an adult with health challenges. Um, and so in these families, it seemed like living in a multi-generational household was really important, providing aging and illness-related care, um, you know, doing the home maintenance that the older adult could no longer do that would allow them to age in place um, with the support of this multi-generational arrangement. Yeah. So, Michelle, though, I want to yeah. – I'm curious what you think about this because that does – we've been talking talking about child care a lot because that's kind of, mm -hmm. in a sense, naturally where the mind goes. But I think we should focus more, as Professor Harvey just did, on adult caregiving because, uh, again, just quoting some numbers from, from Pew here, they found that among adults living with a parent age 65 or older, almost a quarter of them, 25 percent, said they personally provide care for that older adult in their household. Now, this can work in a lot of situations, but it's it's actually quite a stressor on the home um, yeah. and, and on the that sandwich generation as well, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I actually found myself in that situation. Um, my father-in-law could no longer live on his own. He uh, was diagnosed with end-stage lung cancer, and uh, he wanted to fiercely stay in his home, but he just couldn't. He couldn't take care of himself. And the decision was made for him to come live with us. And I, I'm going to be honest with you. It was a couple dark. It was dark at first. Mm -hmm. uh, he was angry um, that he had to give up his independence, and he just I could we could do nothing to satisfy him. And there was this cloud over our house that, and our house is just, you know, how I am. You know, we joke, we laugh, and it was just so dark. And it took some therapy and talking to him and, and patchwork of care. So we had someone come in in the morning to help him get dressed and breakfast. And then there was a break in which I took care of him because I was working from home. And then an evening aid, and that was so that we could stretch the money that he had for his care in his older years. Um, and the evenings were tough. Off, um, because they have this thing called sundown where seniors, uh, uh, especially those who are ill, there's just something that happens to them when it comes nighttime and they get real agitated. And so it was just a lot going on. Uh, and but I have to tell you, you know, in the end, he died in our home and we were glad that we were there to care for him and to have our children see us care for him because then that showed them that that one day they may have to take care of us. And so we pulled them into his care to make sure that they understood that this could be a possibility for them later in life. Mm -hmm. um, and while it started off dark, I'm just grateful that he allowed us to take care of him in his last years. And for those older Americans who are in that situation and they're clinging on to this independence at a 
in a way that is not helpful to them or to their adult children. I need you to let that go. It's okay to share that house. Because even though he died here, he lived here as mm. well. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I will just never forget that change and, and just being able to spend the last moments of his life with him yeah. is very cherished. I cherish that time. Yeah. You know, Michelle, it always lifts my heart to be to hear um so your 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 family's experiences because it gives me something to aim for. I'm also, but but I'm also thinking though about how in, there are situations in which, um, uh, you know, an, a, a parent moves back in with their with their adult children because they can't afford the kind of care they need outside the home, right? right? And right. so, so Professor Harvey, let me turn to you on that one because then that causes a major economic shift, I think, internally into the home, right? Because someone per- sometimes has to give up uh, a job or, or change their working situation in order to care for that, you know, for that parent. And I'm, I'm trying to understand whether this is, again, uh, an outgrowth of uh, you know, the American healthcare system, the high cost of elder care. Um, and this is families just trying to, to, to make do with whatever they can scrape together. Yeah, you know, I think we're still learning about how shared households impact older adults. So most of my work is on um, three-generation households with parents and young children. And so um, in the U.S., the median age of um, transition into grandparenthood is fairly young, like 50. And so most of the adults that I study um, are not actually... um, old enough to need a lot of the care support that that we're discussing here. But one thing that this does remind me of is um, in my, that really rings true even among families with young children is that this distinction between being a householder and a host and a guest in someone else's home. Um, so even though we've talked about all of these benefits of shared households and how they're often um, for both the host and the guest, things like care support, things like economic um, help, these benefits are true for both hosts and guests, but oftentimes we think about shared households as being formed to support the guest's needs, right? The person who's moving into someone else's home. And this is true also among the parents that I spoke with. Um, And so with that context, the householder sort of maintains this position of being both a help provider and of having authority within the home. And so being a host and a guest in a household um, can be a really different experience for families. Mm. Well, let me share one more story, if I could, from uh, from our listeners. This is Melissa Winchell, who told us that she and her husband bought their uh, father's parents' house. Uh, a year ago, so so her her father's parents, no, her husband's father's parents' house. I'm trying to build a family tree in my head here. Anyway, um, and they renovated it to include uh, an in-law apartment, and now they all live together. So the together is Melissa, her husband, their 13-year-old daughter, and her in-laws. And she says that this particular house, because they were able to buy it, has stayed in the family and been a family fixture for 50 years. They built the house over 50 years ago. My husband grew up in that home. Uh, It's just been the hub of our family's life. When we gather, we gather there for holidays, and we gather actually for monthly celebrations of birthdays and anniversaries. They themselves have hosted multi-generations of family there over the years, including their parents. Even their grandparents at one time lived there. 
so it's just an interesting legacy, I think, in our family of caring for generations of people there. And I'm really proud that we're carrying that legacy on. Well, we're rounding towards the end of this conversation. They always go by so quickly. So I want to give both of you um, a last minute here. Professor Harvey, do you think... Since obviously there has been this marked and continuous change since roughly 1980, so we're talking 40, more than 40 years now, do you think government policies are adequately accounting for the rise of multi-generational households in this country? Yeah, I don't think that we um, really build an awareness of how common these households are and the challenges that they face into our policy. And so you can see that in a lot of different ways. Um, so Mitchell Moore and Pokaskis have a new paper about the earned income tax credit, which is one of our major anti-poverty programs. Um, so in these multi-generational household, multiple tax filers might be eligible to claim a child on their taxes. Um, but the IRS only allows one to do so. And having multiple filers claiming the same child can trigger an IRS investigation, which can then, of course, dissuade families from wanting to claim that tax credit in the future. Um, another study by Jennifer Randalls was looking at federally funded relationship classes for um, low-income unmarried parents. And she saw relationship skills instructors encouraging couples who lived in shared households to do things like share their feelings privately at the end of the night, um, sort of ignoring the overcrowded nature of their shared household um, and how difficult it was to get privacy within this shared household. So in all of these examples um, and case after case, you see how sort of an awareness of these households, that it's not just a nuclear family household, um, but there may be other residents in the home and the challenges they face. You can see how that could be important for developing policies um, for families with children. Mm-hmm. Well, Michelle, you're going to get our last 60 seconds because while all of these po- you know, policy level uh, concerns are true, you know, the Pew study from what, uh, from pr- what Professor Harvey has, has found in your own experience, people are finding it to be more of a benefit than a cost. And I know you're on a mission to get more of these multi-generational I homes. Am. I'm on a mission to do it. And if you do it, be intentional about it, have conversations, have a budget, make sure that people feel comfortable, that they're not a guest, that it is their home as well, um, particularly as it relates to older adults, um, you know, have that conversation. And then if you... It, are a caregiver, you got to be, you got to care for yourself as well, yeah. which means you need to make sure you're saving and doing what you can so that uh, you aren't in a situation where someone has to put out money for you. So I, I think this is a great trend and we, you know, we all need to just be talking about it. Yep. And we got, and that's the last minute we have to talk about it for today. So Michelle and Hope, thank you so much. This is On Point. 